Ahoy, my friends. Hey there, I have a secret to tell. I can't talk about a boat. I can't get near a boat. I can't even think about a boat without thinking about pirates, talking like a pirate, and of course, horribly corny pirate jokes. For example, what is a pirate's favorite letter? Of course, you think it's the R, but the C is his true love. And so, so many more. Hey, folks, I trust that this conversation is going to be a good one for you because this podcast was a great one for me to record. Our guest today is Kiel Reinen, recent world tour retiree, gravel newbie with lots of insight and observations to offer here in his inaugural 2022 season. Kiel is a dear friend, and this podcast took place on his sailboat that he has single-handedly rebuilt not quite from the bottom of the sea, but hearing and seeing what he has done to bring it back to life is nothing shy of incredible. Keel and I go way back. We were buddies. We were racing a frenemies through the late 2000s as we butted heads and bumped elbows domestically. Then I went off to Europe a couple years before he did, and he was soon to follow. He set up shop with his family across the pond in Girona, preceded by Italy. I have a similar course of action. Uh, He was a prominent member of the American Cycling Squad, racing at the World Tour and living in Europe as he did for many years, right up until his retirement late last year, 2021. Now, I'm not sure how many of you live near the water or have spent time near the ocean, but there's something incredibly peaceful to me about the sights, the sounds, the smells of nautical living. I spent virtually every day from the day school got out in the summer and right before the day school would start right back up off the coast of Maine. So I love all those senses. I will say, please excuse the sounds of the boats tooting, the bells clanging, and the like that you're going to hear in the background. But truth be told, it's actually something I love, both in general and in this conversation. I'm sure it's something that Keel lives for, as you're going to hear today. One more quick side note. This conversation was in late August, right before Keel and his daughter Emmy Lou took on Rebecca's private Idaho in early September. So this was an amazing little meetup where I drove out to Seattle to meet him. He sailed over across the Sound, I think they call it. From his island, I grabbed his WeHoo trailer, put it in our van so that we could transport it on our van trip from Washington to Seattle. Next up, Keel and I set off on our touristy spin through Seattle. He showed me the sights. He showed me what's going on in the city. And then we returned to the sailboat for this conversation. It was a hoot. And it helps set the scene for this particular conversation. Now, before we jump into it, I wanted to mention that over the course of this summer, I have started taking AG1 by Athletic Greens. I have a very good friend, a trusted friend who has been taking it for years. And after listening to him tell me how much of it he is a fan, literally for these years, I wanted to try it for myself. I've taken vitamin pills on again, off again for decades. I took them in my career. I take them in the present. Again, on again, off again. I do monitor particular blood values. And obviously there is the concern that most or even all of what you consume in a vitamin pill ends up in the toilet. AG1 by Athletic Greens is quite a bit different. To begin, it is a pouch that you quickly and easily mix into water, creating an incredibly tasty, real foods-based drink that by all accounts, mine included, It's going to supercharge your day. Since starting this routine well over a month ago, I've begun every single day with a pouch of AG1 and then straight to my normal 
cup of coffee, my emails, my breakfast, parenting, training, coaching, life that's going to come at me every day. There is no caffeine. There are no wacky stimulants, but I've felt better. I've felt more clarity. I've literally felt more energy since starting this routine. I kid you not. If you're anything like me, you've heard of Athletic Greens prior to right now and moved on with your life. Let this be your invitation to actually try it. Please visit athleticgreens.com slash tedking and they'll give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D plus five free travel packs with your first purchase. Again, simple as that, athleticgreens.com slash tedking and take back your health with one easy step today. That's it. That's all. Let's jumpstart our conversation with Kiel Reinen. This is one of the best settings that I've ever sat down and recorded. There's something too about, I think, at least if you spend your childhood around it, the, the clang of the lines against the halyard, like that running rigging clang on, on an aluminum mast is just like a... It was somewhere near the aquarium that the, the scent hit me and I loved that. Mm-hmm. There's the sea mm-hmm. air, a yep. little bit of nautical fuel. So what I love about the podcast is the world is my studio. And with the result of COVID, a lot of it was uh, in my room across the computer screen, which is far less interesting. So... For the benefit of our guest, on what are we sitting right now? Uh, so we are we are we're podcasting right now. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, we are sitting on my sailboat, recently uh, finished, put back in the water sailboat. Uh, I spent the last five months uh, re- redoing a lot of it. Uh, it uh, I bought it this year, and it turned into a much larger project than I expected. So. It's, and somehow like that makes being on it much more gratifying. Oh, heck yeah. So it's not just that like we're on a sailboat that's nice. We're on a sailboat that I feel like I put a bunch of work into and now I'm reaping the rewards of. Yeah, I mean, you probably could tally the hours, but you've, you've walked me through a handful of the projects and, and you're somewhere up in the countless hours area. Um, how big is this mighty ship? Uh, it's a 35-foot boat, and it the intention behind it was to, to have a, a sailboat, because we, we have a, another sailboat in the family, uh, have a sailboat that was a little bit easier to single-hand and, and also a little bit easier to take with the kids. So my, my kids are almost two and six now, mm-hmm. and they're both very much into being on the boat and sailing, and... We want to continue to encourage that with them and, and enjoy it as a family. So this, the intent behind this boat was to kind of make further family adventures uh, easier and more approachable. And, and then ultimately I'm, I'm, I'm working to kind of combine bikes and boats, my, my two passions, in some funky, fun ways that uh, I'm, I'm going to, I look forward to kind of sharing with, with people. Um, but yeah, a pedal drive for this boat is in in the near future. <laughs> <laughs> Serious. And, and we sailed over, or I sailed over here to meet you today to go for a ride. So yeah. uh, I'm I'm already having a lot of fun, kind of combining the two things. So you, we are in Seattle. We're at uh, Elliott Bay Marina. Elliott Bay Marina, yeah. 
You sailed in from Bainbridge, is that correct? Yeah, so straight straight west of us is Bainbridge Island, my hometown. Born and raised? Born and raised. Give me, give me that lay of the land, because I think I understood Seattle as being an islanded city, so to speak. Uh, what? But then it's not until coming here that you really see that culture. What is, what's it like growing up on Bainbridge? Uh, it's sure shifted a lot, uh, especially in, in the last few years. The, the island is um, much more accessible than, than it used to be. You know, the ferries are um, run more frequently and, and earlier and later than when I was a kid. But uh, it's, not a, it's not a super remote island. There's a, there's a ferry boat that goes from the island to downtown Seattle, but it is an island. It's, it's inconvenient in a lot of ways. And I think it does sort of perpetuate a, a particular type of lifestyle. And in the Northwest especially, I think because so much of the year is the, that kind of overcast, gray, <laughs> hunker-down type weather, mm-hmm. being on an island just sort of amplifies that that feeling. And I, uh, I mean, I definitely, I belong to the island. I, I feel very, not just, you know, that I'm from there, but that's, that is home. And I, I love every part about being on and, and from an island and, and definitely embrace it. And I hope that, you know, my kids childhoods are similar to, to what I experienced because there's there's a lot of really positive things about being from a smaller community like that and having the support of a community like that. How, give me some logistics, how population of Bainbridge like as a kid and now? <laughs> yeah, so let's call it a little little over 20,000 um, folks. It's hard to say exactly. There's, there's quite a few um, second homes on the island so a lot of people will, will have summer homes over there but there's plenty of full-time residents yeah obviously and um, quite a few people more so than when I was a kid will commute over to the city on the ferry boat by either walking or riding so there is a huge um, cycling um, culture on the island but it, it's mostly around commuting rather than mm. you know like road racing yeah. or, or gravel bikes uh, that said you know off-road adventuring ride adventure riding on the the peninsula and on the island has gotten quite popular and there's about 35 miles of trail now on the island um which is pretty amazing like single track access or to. gravel trail yeah i would this is this is what i love about our outdoor studio that is it i would liken it to like cyclocross trails okay. almost so like uh, on a gravel bike there are times when you're you're maybe a little underbiked and and on a you know hardtail you're probably a little overbiked but it's enjoyable either way and uh, I love that the terrain really varies with the seasons here you know the, the riding style the tire choices gearing choices all that really shifts a lot does the entire island feel like a town or are there pocketed towns on the island no there's more kind of pockets of towns and, and town is even a little bit of a large word uh, there is there's the main town Winslow which is a town you know we it has all the standard amenities, grocery store, um, post office, uh, touristy type shops, ice cream shop, bakeries. Um, so there's plenty on that, that kind of main Winslow area, which is sort of split into two, two parts, uptown and downtown. They're, they're not particularly large. Uh, you could certainly walk all of it, um, you know, reasonably and quickly. I'm going to fire up a map and look at Bainbridge as we speak. Go on. Yeah, so this is, oh, this is on the north side of Eagle Harbor. 
uh, on the east side of the island. So I live on the south side of Eagle Harbor, directly across from town. Um, so the harbor is not very wide. So I, I actually, in high school, I, um, a couple of times would swim to school because it was the <laughs> quickest way to get to school. Okay. And uh, so that's the main town. And then there are there's a couple other little pocket um, areas, which is. Um, Linwood Center on the south end. That's probably the closest one to my house uh, if you're not swimming. <laughs> and then there is uh, Center Island. And there is uh, Rolling Bay. Those are kind of the, the other... Like, Rolling Bay is, is a, is, has Bay Hay and Feed, which is like a feed and garden store, a post office, yeah. a, a coffee shop, an auto shop, and a... Um, picture framing shop naturally uh and an italian restaurant so like that's and that's pretty much everything that's up there so like it's not how many bike shops on the island there are two excellent yeah classic cycle and and bi cycle okay uh i went to high school with uh the daughter of the owner of bi cycle Mm -hmm. that's tom clune and then paul johnson owns classic cycle and he is the one who got me into racing uh, so yeah, it's it's because of him that I'm here. So jump off that point. What's it like getting into cycling on an island, or just in Bainbridge in general? What's what's your your, your yeah? We like? we went to a really unique high school in that it was small enough that you you, you know you kind of knew everybody more or less, uh, or had a, at least you know a, a connection to to everybody, and. I and it wasn't a really like clicky high school. It was a very there were there were a lot of really good kids um, when I was growing up on the island, who were all um, already at a young age, sort of um, self aware and wanting to be involved and doing good things. And uh, I mean, I'm really I'm impressed with the number of peers I have from that you know my my, my high school years who have gone out and done really cool things, good things with their lives. So um, I was in very good company. And, and so like the fact that I was a weird bike kid <laughs> didn't really put me in like an odd corner. <laughs> I was um, the only one who was really into road cycling. I had some mountain bike friends, but a bunch of us started bike club at the high school and we, nice. we hosted a once a month ride to school um, day and got a bunch of kids into riding their bikes to school and nobody, you know, thought that was weird everybody was supportive and so it was uh it was certainly not something that a lot of kids were doing uh there were a handful of of mountain bikers for sure but really just a a close buddy of mine and and myself who were uh heavily into road cycling and I, i don't know why it was road cycling instead of cyclocross or mountain bike or you know something else because that's really what i had the most access to ironically but I, I did come over to Seattle to uh, Seward Park to do a practice criterium and, and kind of got into the, the riding community that way. And uh, I was lucky. It was, a, it was a more inclusive environment than I think a lot of people experienced with road cycling at that time. And it was also the, kind of the only viable career path in cycling. I, I, at a very early stage in my cycling pursuit, I decided, like, that's what I'm going to do. And... It was, you know, at the time there were like, you know, maybe five people making mountain bike money mountain biking. So yeah. it just didn't seem uh, like a a good career path. Not that road cycling was either, but I was delusional. So 
uh, I pursued it nonetheless. So continue that chronology. You end up, did you go to CU? Yeah, so I went to, I went to UW here in Seattle for a year. Uh-huh. And then I realized it, it just wasn't going to be a good fit. I, I struggled. I, I wasn't really ready to leave home, honestly. Uh-huh. I, I liked living on the island, and I um, I just didn't feel the need to, like, shove off for somewhere else. Yeah. So, and I really hated the dorm, so I, after, <laughs> you know, a few weeks of trying that, I ended up commuting from home. No way. And living at home. So I would commute in on the ferry boat and go to yeah. UW. Uh, four days a week, uh-huh. and then I just got more and more serious about training. So I did that, and then uh, I knew that that wasn't sustainable. So I started thinking about what colleges I could go to, transfer to, where I could sort of further my pursuit of, of cycling. And so CU was kind of at the top of that list. Yep. And I was studying mechanical engineering, uh, so it was a good fit for that. Uh, and, and what do you mean in that regard? Like that seems like a, a, a admirable pursuit for someone who's trying to be a professional athlete and wants as much free time as possible. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I had a really good deal with my parents, which was if I continue to go to school and and um, get good grades and uh, and take it serious, that they would continue to support my pursuit of cycling. And I I felt very privileged that I was um, in a position to be able to kind of make that that deal uh-huh. uh, and I didn't take it for granted I, I tried to take both my studies and and racing seriously and I think it in the long run it served me well mm-hmm. because it's you know as as you probably have realized too once you're out of the cycling bubble and real life is all around you you do have to kind of go back to some of those lessons you learned early on before you were just in the bubble. And mm-hmm. I am grateful that I uh, had a kind of more balanced existence, I think, pre-cycling career than than some of my peers. Do you have your parents to thank for that or other mentors? Or where do you suppose that, that balance came from? Yeah, I think combination of, of, of people, but certainly my parents were um, incredibly supportive of my pursuit, but also realistic, and uh, they they managed to do that in a way that didn't feel like they were sort of diminishing how invested I was in it. Yeah. Which is a tricky balance. You know, like I see as a parent now, it's really hard to encourage your kids to take something on even when like you think the most likely outcome is that it's, it's going to be you know lead to failure and and encourage them anyway but also to make sure that they have a safety net when they yeah they fail and every once in a while they prove you wrong yeah it's got to be really interesting to be the parent of a, a, a pursuing professional cyclist um it's almost like it's more attainable than say becoming a professional baseball player but it's still so outlandish yeah that i mean my parents were incredibly supportive i'm in the same boat that i'm like i I can't i have nothing but thanks for them for that um i feel like it's a lot of just sort of smiling and nodding along the way like okay yeah you want to go to the you want you need to go to arizona for a semester okay that that seems reasonable or you need to go to the national team for the summer okay like and then somewhere along the way like it 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 happens and it transpires and you're, you're suddenly you are making it. So 
what's your continued chronology you're doing you want CU cycling presumably when do you make it I throw up air quotes there to domestic pro yeah so I was I was still in school and I was with um, my wife at the time you know my, my wife how do you word that my wife my now wife uh, my now wife uh, we were together uh, oh, you get met at school yeah we met at school and uh, in the Summer of 2008, I, I stagiaired for Jelly Belly, and yeah, it was a while ago now. <laughs> I was and, thinking before this podcast about the teams with whom you rode. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Jelly Belly stage, and it went very well. Uh-huh. I uh, I had a good end of the season, and so they immediately uh, handed me a, a two-year contract for 2009, 2010, and I. You know, I was still a kid on a mission at that point. You know, like it was just a stepping stone, and and I was gonna, you know, make sure that I continued to progress and continue to put in the hard work. I stayed in school during those two years and balanced the two things, uh, and it wasn't easy. But again, I think the lessons that I took away from that experience were more important than having had the space to just focus on racing. Like, would I have made more progress quickly? Perhaps. Mm -hmm. But I think, again, long-term, it's certainly better to to do both. To what end? Did you do college in four years? No, five. Four and a half or five. So when did you graduate? Ish. Ish. (laughs) 2000 and... 10. <laughs> Clearly a memorable. Yeah, 2010. Um, I I think my my experience in domestic cycling I call the tail end of the heyday of domestic racing. Yeah, I I spent a lot of time thinking about this, so I'm curious to hear what you have to say because it I took it for granted. No, no, I didn't take it for granted. I I I knew that it was a I wanted it to be a stepping stone for me, but I was appreciative of the opportunity. Yep. I did not, for once, think that um, I was better than the situation I was in. You know, like, it, mm-hmm. it was it was a huge opportunity to be on Jelly Belly and a big deal to me at the time, and I, I did my best to uh, pay the team back for their sort of willingness to take a risk on me. Yep. Um well, yeah, you, you you can't entirely you, you can never take it for granted because there is no there are no guarantees. To be young as a domestic pro does not mean you're going to make it to Europe. And and like I said, this is heyday of American racing, so you could feasibly make a livable income living and racing domestically. This is this is the days of Fitchburg and Cascade and Altoona and Redlands and yeah. Gila and yeah, there were so there were many. a lot of really good uh, tour Missouri. Yep. Yep. Uh, so, okay, how many years do you do with Jelly Belly? How many years do you race domestically, so to speak? Because you, did two. you do Team Type 1? Yeah, so so I raced two years domestically, Bananas. and then uh, Team Type 1 was going pro-continental the next year, and they were on a, a mission, so they were hiring a bunch of European pros off World Tour teams yep. and registering as a pro-continental team, and they were fully set up in Europe. So the deal was you live in Europe, um, in Italy, I lived um, outside Camiore. Yeah. 
down the, the road towards the water from Luca. And it was a full Euro program with trips to the U.S. So You're dating Jordan at the time? Yeah, okay. yeah. So we were we were dating still, and uh, it the first season with them, I sort of left and went over, and I went by myself. And Jordan was kind of pursuing her stuff, and I was pursuing my stuff, and we were um, going to just figure out how to make that work. And pretty quickly, it it didn't. I got sick. Um, I had a very rough start to the season, and after you know, a lot of hard preparation. And it was a moment in my career where everything definitely could have just fallen apart and that was the end of it. And it would have been, you know, a, a story that is not uncommon in, you know, professional cycling. So uh, luckily I was on a two-year contract because that was a requirement for a pro continental team. They, yep. you know, they had to, if you were first, um, if you were the first time to Pro Condi or, or World 2, they had to sign you two years. So I was able to um, turn things around and, and get my feet back under me the next season. But living in Europe was hard. I um, The next year I went from living in Italy to Spain, and that was a big big help. I lived with, with um, Pete Stetna in Girona, and he I didn't realize how much I was going to need somebody to kind of show me the, the ropes over there. And... Uh, after that experience too, I, I learned to not take any of the steps for granted. It was, it did become clear to me at that point how quickly uh, it could all vapor, you know, vaporize uh, or evaporate. I guess is actually the word I was looking for um, into thin air, or uh, well, and also to recognize that you can't build your whole life around one thing. So you. If you just do this and it's your hobby, your, your vocation, your friend group, your uh, mental health tool, like, and then all of a sudden it gets taken away from you for whatever reason, yeah. that's a dangerous situation to be in. So be, be, be a more well-balanced human. And I, I definitely took that forward with me. The, the thing that I regret about that experience is it also made me less confident in being able to commit fully to cycling as a career. Uh-huh. Every year felt like this could be the last after that, which in some ways served me really well and in other ways set me up for failure. Because yeah. uh, I, I watched other riders come over and like fully commit to living in Europe and you know, I like, I was at the point where I, like, I wouldn't buy a cutting board because yeah. I was like, well, yeah, if you don't get a contract next year, that cutting board, that's going to be a wasted purchase. <laughs> you know, what are you going to do with that? So I, I was very sort of timid after that experience to, to committing fully to, like, I'm going to make a career of this. On which team are you talking specifically? Is this Team Type 1? Where you're, you're... Yeah, the year I was sick, and, yep. and I, I bounced back from it and saw, okay, I'm, I'm going to be okay. Like, I'm yeah. going to be able to continue this as a career. But, but I saw how quickly it could all, you know... It almost feels like you're on borrowed time. Yes, yeah. Um, I know what you mean. I mean, in a way, I feel like I did the same thing in my career where, like, I loved the European lifestyle. I loved living and racing in Europe, but in my mind, it was like... Oh, interesting. I was always going to come home. Yeah, right, right. As opposed to the folks who are purely, you know, Christian Meyer, right? Yeah, committed. Committed. Like, okay, you own businesses in Europe. That's a whole different ball of wax. But admittedly, I bought a cutting board. 
I bought a couple odds and ends, but like it was never. I, I was never going to buy a car, right. which sounds ridiculous for a professional athlete to live in a car. I, I know, but that's that's totally how I it's completely normal. Approached it, yeah. So, okay. Um, what are the the steps in which you ultimately make it to track? So I had kind of I, I blossomed relatively late, and so I had. In my head, I had sort of reached a place where, you know, like when, when we were kids, everybody was watching Lance Armstrong. So, like, if you wanted to make it in road cycling, you were going to the tour. That was, yep. you know, that was the jam. And, and you needed to be a stage racer, which was interesting. You know, like we saw so many kids who were pushing to become really good time trialists and climbers. And I think a lot of kids would have made it a lot further if they'd said, hey, you know what, I'm going to be a classics rider or a sprinter yeah. or, yeah. A, you know, but that... There just wasn't, it wasn't very popular, you know, when we were young to, to pursue that version. So anyway, I, I, at some point I realized, okay, my, my niche is, is really sprinting out of small groups. So I need to, you know, figure out how to survive the climbs and then outkick everybody. So I focused on that and, and I found races that, you know, suited that. And, and at the time I was on UHC and they were supportive of me pursuing that version. And so I, I sort of found my um, my niche and, and went with it. And uh, I also had gotten to the point where if I didn't go to Europe, well, I, I mean, I was already living in Europe on UHC, but it was, it was a more split program. So it was, again, I didn't have to fully commit to, to living over there and if I never got to a version where I, ha I kind of was forced to, I I'd reached peace with that. You know, like mm -hmm. I was okay with that. And I wasn't going to leave the situation I was in just because. It was a very good situation. I had a lot of say in my schedule and in the riders I worked with. And I, I just had found my place in a lot of ways. Yeah, that was a powerhouse program. And again, we were in a, a type of heyday in, in USA Cycling that was different than the one we started in, right? Like, there was there was less domestic teams, mm -hmm. but there was great racing in the U.S. that these teams would fly everybody back for. And because we were a U.S.-sponsored team, yeah. they were those were the most important races of the season. So not only did I get to come to them, I got to prepare for them the way I wanted to and put the importance on them. California. California, Utah, Colorado, Colorado yeah. uh, Philly, Nationals. Those were all, like, key races. Quebec, Montreal, Alberta. Mm -hmm. And I, I really enjoyed being able to kind of be my best at those races. And eventually Trek noticed, and so they, they made me an offer to um, jump ship and, you know, go to a, a world tour team. And uh, because it felt like a really good fit, I, I did it. And I, in the end, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful that I did because that, again, that heyday sort of... Um, it reached a tipping point, and, and all of a sudden those races started to mean less, get less attendance. Mm -hmm. You know, they were smaller and smaller until they disappeared, mm -hmm. and now they don't exist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, I got out at a good time, um, and Trek ended up being a phenomenal fit for me. Uh, they, for whatever reason, they really understood that I... Uh, was more comfortable and would perform better given more freedom to kind of travel back and forth. So I, my schedule didn't change a ton from, you know, UHC to Trek in terms of the amount I was home and uh, which races I targeted. And uh, I, the, you know, there were some small changes. All of a sudden, you know, you know, of course the team was going to all the Grand Tours. And so um, 
I went to the, the Vuelta that first year on the team, and I am really, you know, reflecting back, looking back, I found a home on Trek immediately, and and then I stayed there for, for the rest of my career because mm-hmm. I, one, I, th- I think I, I filled a, a role that um, they needed filled on the team, but they also really valued... Uh, what I brought and uh, and made me feel like I you know they got the best out of me and so it was it was a good deal all, all around um, and I think had I been on a team where it was more restrictive uh, I would have struggled more and, and when I say more restrictive I mean in terms of how much kind of bouncing back and forth to, to yeah. America I was allowed to do and uh, how much sort of freedom and flexibility I had with training and, and my approach to, to racing and, and preparation. When our fair listener is going to hear the, the team Trek talked about, I think they're probably thinking of, of possibly a company out of Waterloo, Wisconsin. Um, and the reality is that, you know, you're talking about the culture of a, a world tour cycling team, not purely the, the bike manufacturer. What is the what is that culture of that team? Are you guys predominantly Belgian or Italian or how, like how many other Americans did you have on the team? It's really interesting. So during my career, there was uh, one to zero other Americans on the team. Not a lot of Americans. Which can be crazily isolating. <laughs> but yes, yeah, absolutely. It's so hard to explain that to someone who hasn't, yeah. you know, been in that situation. But uh, Trek is unique in that they own their World Tour team. Yeah. So they, yep. they're not just the sponsor of a world tour team. And that means the ethos of the company really does sort of saturate or, or um, you know, bleed through into the, the ethos of the team. Okay. And in a really positive way, because I, um, I think Trek is, is a unique company in a lot of ways. And they've done a really good job kind of cultivating a particular type of culture within the company and, and the team. Mm-hmm. And the... Uh, team itself, despite the fact that they, they, they put a lot of effort into making sure it's a really diverse team culturally. So the, they've never been about hiring a large contingent of whatever, you name it, Italians, Belgians, mm-hmm. um, Norwegians. They, they really like to have a large uh, spread of, of cultures on the team, not just amongst the riders, but staff too. Mm-hmm. And I think what that does is it prevents the team from taking on a uh, sort of too much of one culture uh, in the in an effort to not drown out any particular culture. So I, I think if I had to, to say that the team felt like anything, it felt very American in a lot of <laughs> ways. <laughs> but it also felt incredibly international. Yep. And uh, I was shocked at how good a job they did at making everyone feel like they belonged. And and the hardest thing to do on a team, a world tour team, I think, period, uh, when there is sort of that multicultural melting pot, <laughs> is keeping it from becoming clicky. Yeah. You know, like, how do you get the Belgians to sit with the Italians and to, you know, like, it, it's really an, a difficult thing to, to accomplish. And so I, I applaud them for being as ambitious as they were around, you know, including so many cultures and, into the team and, and mixing them together and, and not just allowing them to sort of segregate. Yeah. 
Yeah, as <laughs> having ridden for a, a very polarized Italian team, um, preceded by Cervelo Test Team. Cervelo Test Team, I mean, to this day, I could see a rider on that team and, and we'd give each other a massive hug, whereas I might give one of my liquid gas riders a high five or a nod across the room. Cervelo created that environment incredibly well. 25 riders and 15 nationalities, and, and I think it, it was that cultural melting pot. Um, so, you know, it's certainly interesting to feel both cultures of both teams. Uh, this is a very broad-reaching question. If you were to summarize your World Tour experience, what would you chalk it up as? What would you, how would you describe it? How do you describe it to, to you know, folks who are uninformed with the sport, but they know they're racing on the other side of the world? It's brutally difficult. And <laughs> it's, I, again, I, I applaud Trek for the amount of effort they put in to sort of create this really inclusive feeling environment, multicultural, you know, inclusive environment. And, uh, and it, it did make a difference. I mean, I was, I was on the phone yesterday yeah. with uh, my this one year that I worked the most with nice. Igor. He's he's from the Basque country. Yeah. Oh, he's great. Uh, he's. I had him on. Yeah, on he was on Cervelo test team. Yeah, that's <laughs> yes. That's uh, And so, uh, and he's you know like, and I talk regularly to a lot of my teammates. So, I do have a lot of really positive relationships that are meaningful to me and continue to be from from that team. And I, I again like I think in, in pro sports that's not an easy thing to to accomplish, but it is really hard in a competitive atmosphere to when you're when you are struggling to to find a safe place to to sort of land and and connect with with people Mm -hmm. and maybe like maybe you're the hang-up right like maybe it's nobody's fault but my own but i i do think that when I th- when I think back to to my world tour career, there's a bunch of really high moments where I I was with my teammates. We did really well. Things were amazing, and I you know think back fondly on on that that race or that dinner or that whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, the the hardest moments were when I was you know personally struggling, and because you're in a foreign country without a ton of like day-to-day support you just don't know where to turn to to find someone who will help guide you through those moments mm-hmm. and you can call your high school buddy you can you know talk to your wife you can or partner and you can um, you know talk to a friend on a um, you know who's on another team who's going through something similar but mm-hmm. it it just is like you said it, it can be very isolating as an american doing a predominantly european sport mm-hmm. and i don't know that there's a good solution i think it's just that's what it is yeah you, you immediately need to become very self-reliant because outside of the absolutely extraordinary once in a decade kind of rider who has the full team that can follow them you need to figure out your own problems. You need to figure out your your Spanish or Italian taxes as much as you need to figure out how to get your spouse or significant other over to Europe as much as you need to figure out how to get your freaking training bike back to America. Uh, yeah, it is very... 
very hard to translate. One thing that uh, separates the two of us is I lived my entire European career uh, as a swinging single bachelor. I, I dated a, a girl briefly, and, and with all respect to her, I broke up to her, broke up with her while in Europe. Um, you became married somewhere in your career and had a child or two in your career. So walk me through, I mean, talking about the, the, the perils of being a European-based cyclist, what's it like being a parent? <laughs> Depends on what kind of parent you want to be. <laughs> I, uh, I do remember talking to my wife when we found out that she was pregnant the first time and saying, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen here, but I, it's much more important to me to be a good father than it is to be a good cyclist. And so if this is sort of the beginning of the end of my career, um, because we chose to go down this path, I'm okay with that. And uh, I hope you are too. It doesn't, you know, it didn't mean I was surrendering. It just meant that I, I don't, I didn't know what to expect or what was going to happen. And so I, I went into the experience with a, an expectation of who I, I wanted to be as a parent. And then I just let the chips kind of land where they, you know, or fell, fall where they fell. And in the end, it turned out that uh, my wife is a saint, and <laughs> we managed to uh, an absent father continue doing what we were doing, despite you know having a third person in our in our um, family unit. So. Uh, there were times when I had to make certain sacrifices one way or the other, and it was difficult, and, um, you know, it made me feel either like I could keep going forever or that I needed to stop, but ultimately, it was, it was very doable for us and our situation. Two kids was harder. Yeah, it was a game changer. Uh, I, you know, it was in the midst of the pandemic, too, so, uh, my, my second daughter was, was born in the fall of 2020. And so there was just a lot of other factors involved. And it's hard for me to say, you know, had things been normal, would two kids have, you know, been as crippling as <laughs> it felt at the time? I, I don't know. But uh, I definitely, there was a big shift for us with, with two kids. And we were getting older in general. You know, I was I was getting to an age where thinking about my career because at that point you know I guess you're allowed to call it a career you know you've been doing it for more than a decade so I uh, I only have the context I have and, and that context was you know the midst of a pandemic we had two kids and it felt like it was time to be more settled uh, at home and I you know I'd done a really good job for better or for worse during my career of, of keeping and, and maintaining the island as home and you know we had a base in, in Girona we bounced back and forth a lot but home was still the island and the yeah sort of the pitfalls of, of being a, an American in a European in a Euro, Eurocentric sport was, was like at some point it's, it's going to come to a close and and 
when it does, it's a shock because it's it's sort of all or nothing. I mean, when you're out of that bubble, you're out of that bubble, especially as an American. So I, I think that when I was looking at it, you know, when I decided to, to, to race gravel, part of that decision was I, I didn't feel all the way done. What I felt done with was the sort of living dual life. And, um, you know, I felt like the, the child of a divorce. I, I just, I was a little bit here and a little bit there, and, and it meant that I wasn't 100% anywhere. And gravel felt like an opportunity to me of continuing uh, my career, but sort of on my terms. And it was a really good way, potentially, you know, when I was looking at it, a, a really good way to to have all the positive parts about the sport that I, I loved and enjoyed and I wanted to continue enjoying without the things that were getting more difficult for me. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that included travel. Well, in our ride a short while ago, we were talking about how one year ago you you would be at the Vuelta. You know, you you retired yeah. in 2021. You are, how old are you now? Old enough to party. Heck yeah. <laughs> uh, 36. You you had talked about earlier that that retiring was also like a two year process, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, well, okay. Admittedly, that was amid a pandemic. Um, yeah, hard, hard again to like take that context out of the equation. Sure. But, but yeah, it was, it was in a lot of ways for for my wife and I a two year process. What do you suppose? This is shifting gears relatively enormously, but then straight on topic. What do you suppose your expectations were of gravel? That's a great question. Wow. I like, I like the very vague, overarching questions. <laughs> Yeah, but, but but a really important one, right? Because whatever I did or didn't expect of gravel, mm-hmm. it changed dramatically in the last year. And so, what? And then this is something I, I feel like as a parent, you have to revisit all the time, right? Like, mm-hmm. well, what were your expectations around that situation? That's a you know, perfect like, uh, comparison. Like, as, as a parent of a young child, the child changes month to month, week to week, year to, especially year to year. And gravel is still so young that, yeah. you know, I was talking about gravel in 2016. Like, you wouldn't even use the word gravel in 2016. And now you have terms like gravel pro and privateer, both of which just make me cringe. But at the same time, I recognize that the professionalism of the sport, it's almost like the inertia is there and, and, and the ball is rolling and there's something there's something legitimate and cool about taking it seriously. Okay, so here's here's what I expected from gravel. <clears throat> One of the things that was really difficult for me in professional road cycling was a, a lot of people are, are fans of the sport and they will ask questions about, well, how, what was it like at the, you know, or how did this feel? Or It is almost entirely unrelatable. Uh-huh. Right, like you have a friend who rides a road bike. That's not what we did, yeah. and yeah. and and I don't know how to describe to them what what we did exactly. You know, like it, it just it, there's just no relatability component. So gravel, one of the things I was most excited about, and one of my expectations with gravel is I'm going to have relatable experiences that I can share with people to get them excited about bikes, to commiserate with them, to um, feel you know 
triumph and joy with them, and 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 th those are the types of feelings and experiences that bring communities together. Okay. So that 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 sense of you know shared experience will make the community stronger, and it will be a more inclusive community. The second thing I thought was less travel. Mm -hmm. That turned out to be sort of true. I mean, I, I definitely don't travel as many time zones away. Fewer transatlantic uh, There's trips. more frequent travels, but they're shorter, which is better with kids, yeah. for sure. Uh, the, the next thing I expected is that I wouldn't have to have the sort of regimented, excuse me, lifestyle that I had been living. So, you know, was I still going to try extremely hard in moments and, you know, ride my bike a lot? Yes. But it, it wouldn't have that sort of military-esque regimen to it that, yeah. you know, we've been asked to maintain for so many years. And that was going to feel like a relief, you know, in my head. Uh, turns out I like regimen more than I thought I did. Uh, uh, it's also really hard when you're not accountable in the same way that you are on a world tour team to hit the mark. Right, like when you can go. Well, if I ride two hours today, I can ride a little longer tomorrow, and the, you know, it just when there's when there's not sort of direct marks to hit all the time, it gets a lot more blurry and a lot more difficult to kind of track. Uh, I did not expect the the quote unquote workload to be as significant as it was. So you know, when I started gravel, I was doing so uh, with the expectation that I'd be able to hold a part time job on top of it, yep. and uh, this season changed my perceptions around whether that's feasible or not. If you if you want to be at the sharp end of the race, that's the other thing. Is you know I got through this season and I feel like I have a much better understanding of um, which events are the events to go to, or which organizers are the organizers to talk to, and which riders are the riders that um, you know have similar approaches and uh, all these different things. But the, the biggest sort of takeaway for me was that whatever, whatever I learned may be irrelevant next year. It, it, it's, it's shifting so quickly that I, I, I don't know. And I think that's, that's what's hard, right? Is it, when it's a shifting landscape and you're trying to discover it. And, and this is different for you. you know, you've been in this world for a bit. This isn't as new to you as it is to me. It was a real struggle this year for me to navigate the gravel world, to find myself, you know, my place within it, and have it changing out from under me. Yeah, you know, like those, those two things shifting simultaneously made it really um, hard to kind of feel everything out and, and know what what version it is I'm searching for and what uh, where I belong in it. Which is the perfect segue to, you know, we talked about there's something of an existential examination that happens when you leave the world tour where everything is yeah. so... You're living in a bubble. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, again, it's all about perspectives. Mine was from the perspective of a very independent soul person as opposed to being a, a father and spouse i mean it's yeah jordan i mean jordan and i when i look back at my my career yeah that's exactly it it's not my career it was our career yep i i wouldn't have made it as far as i did without 
Jordan involved, and uh, everything we accomplished, we accomplished together. Uh, and it, you know, we made certain choices like having Emmy when we were these days relatively young, <laughs> nothing compared to 50 years ago, but uh, we, we did that together. And uh, just like we, you know, we built our, our career together. So she was very much a part of the, the, all of it. Well, you and I have already talked about it offline. Give me the, the week or two weeks leading up to Lead Boat, because I think it's nothing shy of comical for our observer who's like, you're a professional gravel racer. You trained 20 hours and then tapered to 10 hours. What did those couple weeks look like? Well, yeah, it was, it was an interesting couple weeks. So I... Uh, had had a trip on the um, the boat planned for for some time, and we we finished the boat, and so uh, we took the boat north. And I was I brought um, my bike and running shoes with, and so we uh, were in enough kind of anchorages where I could access some trails that you know I was able to hop off and do a ride and a run here and there. And, and my plan was kind of, okay, I'm going to do that for, for a week and then buckle down. So uh, got done with the boat trip and, you know, surprise, surprise, with all the chaos and the things going on, you know, I got probably five hours in that week. Uh, the next week, because I have kids, of course, uh, I was sick. So I got a whopping zero hours of training in. And then the next week, we had to get ready to go to Colorado. And this is the only trip this year where I'd planned to, to bring the family uh, because it just, it is a lot harder with two kids. And so we were gonna make a trip of it. And, and also my wife's family lives in Colorado. So we were gonna visit family and, and I was gonna get some altitude training in, et cetera, et cetera. And so in preparation for uh, departing to Colorado, it, that takes a lot of bandwidth when you have two kids and you're going to get on a plane, you got to pack up all the stuff. And it was a long trip. We were going for, for two weeks. Uh, so <clears throat> during that week, oh, and then the kids got sick. Perfect. So like during that week, I think I got about three hours in on the bike, flew to Colorado. Uh, and then uh, my wife and kids were staying with family and I went to stay with uh, Alex house. And so I had a week of, you know, I didn't have a lot of obligations as a parent or things I was doing at home. And, you know, at home, there's, there's always distractions. So uh, we got in, I think it was 26 and a half hours of, of training that week. And then the next week was the race. So it was, yeah, uh, it was very short of an ideal buildup in so many ways. And when you're a parent, you know, there's a, there's a part of you that's kind of, you just make do, you know, you go, yeah, it wasn't ideal, but I'm going to make it, I'm going to make it work. Yeah. Uh, and then there's a part of you that like, when you look back, I think it goes, there must've been a better way to do this. I just, I failed. I just <laughs> did not do a good job of planning this out. And it just, it's hard when you're, when you're a parent and you're in it and it's like, you know, cause it's a grind, right? There, there's not a lot of opportunity to be proactive. So much of what you're doing just ends up being reactive because that's all you have bandwidth for. And when you're reactive and, and not proactive, you know, your plans suck. <laughs> all you see is trees and no forest. Right. Yep. Um, 
How much of that do you suppose was a surprise? Just the the. I mean, I guess it's directly related to thinking that you can you can maintain a, a part-time job. You are you've talked about your count cal- uh, your schedule again offline where you know you have the kids full time. A couple days per week, like that means there's no no formidable riding that day for yeah. sure. When was the last time you worked with a coach? When was the last time you did an interval? Uh, I, so we we spoke about this a little bit while we were riding today. I I will do intervals uh, when so occasionally when I have both kids, I'll put Margo down for a nap, mm-hmm. and I'll let Emmy listen to a book on tape while I ride the trainer for you know 50 minutes. Yeah, yeah. And win. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it feels like a real big win and in that moment. And so whenever I'm pressed for time like that, you know, and I have like literally 50 minutes. my head goes back to that space of like you know the old lifestyle where you go okay you know bad weather day you were going to do four hours with climbing efforts you know what does coach have you do now and so then i'll bang out some 40 20s or some you know eight minutes on three minutes off type intervals just because i i don't know what else to do i mean what are you going to do ride a a trainer steady for 50 minutes that doesn't work so uh I probably ended up doing intervals more often than anybody else in gravel this year just because of that. Uh, it doesn't mean that I was doing the right intervals uh, for the right amount of time, but I definitely did intervals. Uh, the coach question. When was the last time you worked with a coach? I actually um, have been working a little bit with my old coach, Ben Day, uh-huh. and uh, that started uh, as sort of a side project for a bunch of reasons that are too long of a story to get into, but Ben and I worked together for a large chunk of of my career, and I credit him with kind of getting me uh, to my best level, uh, and he um, went on to to work for Green Edge, and um, when that uh, contract started. I we had to part ways because that was part of the, the stipulation. So um, it was really refreshing to to get to kind of have an excuse to chat again. And uh, Ben and I were teammates before we, he was ever my coach. So uh, we have a, a long relationship, and it's it's really cool to see now reflecting back like how big of a role coaches generally, but in my case specifically Ben, played in, in my career. And it doesn't just go for the, you know, world tour athlete paying a coach to, you know, tell him what intervals to do. I mean, all the way back to, you know, Paul Johnson at Classic Cycle getting me interested in, in riding bikes. I mean, coaches, uh, mentors, people who know the sport and help you navigate it, those are the people who uh, ultimately we kind of owe our careers to yeah it goes back full circle to sort of the mentor question like yeah they're your friend they're your outlet they're your sounding board certainly they can give you intervals and they can give you advice but it's it's sort of the everything else that i feel like those folks are relied upon for how about as we near the end three typical questions one, your favorite place to ride a bike. Two, what is the number one place you would like to ride your bike where you've never ridden? And three, with whom would you like to go for a bike ride? So I do love riding on the island so much, even though it's where I ride all of the time. Uh, but the Olympic Peninsula, specifically the Olympic National Park, uh, 
is, you know, for gravel, the creme de la creme out here. And I could get lost out there for days and not lose interest. Seems it's like Jurassic Park out there. It is, yeah. It's like, it is totally prehistoric feeling. The whole rainforest is apparently the quietest place in the United States, continental United States. <laughs> uh, so it just, yeah, and it, it just bleeds quintessential Pacific Northwest. Yeah. As for where I would like to go ride, I'm very interested in um, discovering two places, uh, remote areas of Vancouver Island, which I could potentially only get to by boat. Cool. Connecting sailing and bikes. I like it. Uh, the other one is uh, Mexico, Oaxaca specifically. I like it. I won't even explore that question. Okay, and with whom? Living or otherwise? Fictitious? Non? I most enjoy riding with family, so I do occasionally get the golden opportunity to ride with my cousins, uh, who now have my old gravel bikes, and my dad, and it's and my uncles, and it's it's pretty special when you get to share those moments with family, because... Uh, family is incredibly important to me. It's it's why this place isn't just uh, where I live. It's you know it's home. And there's so much of my career that is difficult again to kind of relate or to share. Uh, but a bike ride, everyone can can share and relate to a bike ride. Bingo. Well, beautiful answers. Thank you for the setting. Thank you for the ride. Thank you for the tour of Seattle. I feel like I've touched on about a tenth of what I want to talk about, so hopefully this is part one in a multi-part series. But <laughs> in the meantime, I'm going to let you get uh, out to the high seas so that you can go pick up your daughter and <laughs> bring her back. And I'll see you in RPI. Yeah, it won't be won't be too long here. Uh, big shout out to Ted for transporting the Wii Hoo. That's right. Uh, we didn't even get a Another chance to talk, to talk about, about what we're doing at RPI. Oh man! All right. Well, yeah. leave that as a little bit of bait for our listeners. Yeah, big big things though. Big plans. I love it. All right, Keel. Thank you so much, man. Thanks, buddy. Good to see you. Likewise. Thank you again, Keel. Thank you, listeners. Like I said at the top of the show, if you are looking to eliminate those 10 bottles of vitamin pills that you start off your day with currently, then I cannot personally suggest strongly enough that you look into Athletic Greens. In particular, their AG1 pouch has changed the way I start my day and it has changed the way I feel only for the better. Just visit athleticgreens.com slash tedking and you'll have a gift coming your way with your first purchase. It's as simple as that. Thanks again. Until next time, folks, please enjoy the ride.